You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello and welcome back to Chronicle: The History of Newcastle United. I'm Matt Ketchell, football fan engagement editor at Chronicle Live, and we've reached the 1970s, our historic walk through the entire 140-year history of Newcastle United, the club of a couple of Wembley dates to fulfil, and there's a new hero in town to worship. Last week's episode covered the glorious first cup win of 1969, with myself and Paul joined by club legend Bob Moncur. How can we top that, I hear you ask? Well, we've got a pair of legends joining us for a very special recording this week, as we're joined by Voice of the Tune for over 50 years, Chronicle journalist John Gibson and Malcolm MacDonald, legendary number nine, who dominated the era we're about to discuss. John, Malcolm, warm welcome to the show. Delighted to be here, man. Thank you so much, Matt. Yeah, I should mention, this is the first episode of the series that myself and Paul have managed to record in person, for obvious reasons, and I just want to extend a huge thank you to Nicky and the staff at the Gibraltar Rock in Timemouth for hosting us. We're sat here overlooking the magnificent King Edwards Bay, and it's a, it's a 10 minute walk from a house, which, uh, which is ideal for me. I know Paul's traveled all the way down from Scotland. I was quite sure. <laughs> There's a bit of a difference there. So, <laughs> didn't want to. I did, wondered if I should mention that, Paul, but it's handy for me. But we're really delighted that you could come and, and be here for, with us, Paul, and, and, and you too, John and Malcolm. It's a huge honor uh, to discuss the Super Mac era, as we're calling it. And uh, I wanted to start by asking you both if you can remember the first time you met, because obviously you've gone on to become lifelong friends thereafter. We have, we have. Um, well, I, I didn't cover the pre-season games, um, but the start of the season, I was travelling with Newcastle at that time, so uh, I was at both early matches, Crystal Palace and Spurs. But I think the simple answer to the thing is Malcolm McDonald introduced himself to the whole of the northeast, not just me, when we played Liverpool at home. And... Um, from that day in rushing to get quotes from him and they were always the best quotes because he didn't know how to sit on a fence and that day he didn't need to sit on a fence hat trick against Liverpool from that day on we just got warmer and warmer and we've stayed friends all our life and that's been my privilege because uh, I don't surround myself with people that can't play football you know and this fellow was very good at that Do you remember Malcolm the first time John shoved a microphone under your nose? Uh, oh, he didn't have a microphone. No, oh, the no, pen no, and no, pad, no. I suppose no, it would have no, been. No. Was, yeah. <laughs> it's old school then. Yes, yeah, very old school. I, I, I certainly do, um, because there was... Uh, Joe Harvey was a very relaxed manager. He, he wasn't concerned about uh, players and journalists getting together. And I know a lot of current managers are very nervous about that and, and it's all very controlled they even employ people to make sure that it's, it, it, it goes um, according to club rules and plans and stuff um, but Joe he just gave us all free abandon um, just to get on and do the chat and, and I think that his theory was that through John I can communicate with the fans and that that was vitally important for the club um, and the fans so that there was that dialogue going on. And John, of course, was really representative of the fans um, as the professional journalist there. So um, it it was a good two-way thing. It really was. And and you build, don't you? Yeah. I mean, we build over the years. There was the two rooms, which was a restaurant, literally Mm. outside of the Gallagher end of the... the ground and often after a game a lot of the boys with Malcolm we knew Roy Santos would go down there I would join them would have a terrific night and it would all come pouring out the big thing I feel we've got to say in those situations is trust while you Mm. were allowed to be together like that by Joe Harvey if you let somebody down, that would be the end of the story. Never did that. And the golden rule for me was anything that was said that night 
was not to be reported. It might be stored away in my head and I might go back the next day and say, remember when you said that last night? Mm-hmm. Is that on the record or off the record? But it, the trust was the huge, huge thing in a relationship. And I was pleased I operated in that time because you could get close to players. I mean, Irving Natwis was godfather to one of my girls. Bob Monker was godfather to my other girl. I was best man, Malcolm, when he got married. You could form relationships like that. There's not a lot of those relationships now no. because yeah. players impress on different levels yeah. and they're not encouraged to mix. No, as a, as a journalist working in the modern era, I'm very jealous of that access. Yeah, so, uh, it was terrific. Non-existent. Mm. Don't mind you, you could get rejected as well because you didn't have a lot of press conferences. Mm. You had a lot of one-on-ones. I went to St. James's Park every morning and had a, a situation where I talked to Joe Harvey for that day's paper, but it was one-on-one. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't going to work off, you didn't get on or he didn't like you that particular day because mm-hmm. he had said something, you would get now. Mm-hmm. So you had to build relationships. Mm-hmm. But there were, there were good days and there were special days and I felt the, the players were therefore much closer to the fans. And that, after all, as Malcolm said, was the whole idea. Yeah. All, I, all we are, Matt, is the middleman that tells the fans what the players think because mm. we are the person in the middle. Yeah. Sure, and uh, just following up on what John said about uh, uh, um, that trust can be broken very easily in a press conference. And my first press conference at, at Newcastle, I, I was asked the question, how many goals are you aiming to score? And so I, I, I said, well, my target is always 30. That was the target I was given at Luton, and that's the target that I'll maintain here. Um, I said, albeit that it's less games than we played in the third division, uh, I'm after scoring 30 goals this season. That's what I'll be chasing. Um, and the reporter for the Daily Mail, Doug Weatherall, um, he wrote a, 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 a bit of a bitchy thing about about it, and 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 the headline for it was super mouth <laughs> and I, but I was trying to explain cause, because uh, um, it's almost a, philo- a philosophy that I'd learned from my manager at Luton, Alex Stock of what goal scoring is about and how you have to um, approach it how you have to think about it um, and how you have to get out and, and do it. My mind was ticking over literally 18 hours a day on how to score goals. And I would work for two hours after each training session. You know, I'd, I'd want a goalkeeper to stay and somebody to cross the ball and what have you, and work all the, all the different methods uh, of scoring. Um, uh, but obviously, this particular reporter, he didn't understand that it was a philosophy. He just thought I was sort of bragging and saying, oh, I won't get 30, and, you know, and, but it, that wasn't the point at all. I think everybody else, they got the point, but there was one that didn't. So you, I stayed wary of this guy yeah, okay. for, for the rest of my time in the Northeast. And of course, you know, you very nearly did get 30 that season. But, uh, <laughs> very, yeah, very close. <laughs> yeah. 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 He, he was never far away. No, no, no. Yeah. no. It's 30 in a career these days, yeah, Paul, yeah, not, not right. 30 in a season. <laughs> Paul, you were there as a fan to witness the Supermac era. Um, John mentioned that uh, he was the conduit between the players and the fans. Let's hear what, how, you, how you found it. You, what was Malcolm's arrival like in, in 1971? How was he received? Uh, where do I start, really? Um, after three years watching European football, first cup, and that, that was terrific. But another five years watching uh, Super Mac was, uh, was just wonderful. There's so much to pack in since the day uh, Malcolm arrived at St James's Park in a Rolls Royce, uh, and I remember that, uh, during May 1971. He cost United a record fee of 180000 uh, from Luton Town and was such a huge success overall, 257 games and 138 goals. Now, there's not many centre-forwards at St James's Park uh, can match that and better it. Uh, for fans like me, you lived through that Super Mac era. Uh, it was just pure magic uh, and, and pure excitement. Few strikers, and I can't think of any really after Malcolm, uh, who could put you on the edge of the seat like he did. Mm. You know, it was just wonderful to watch uh, mm-hmm. uh, week after week. Yeah. 
Malcolm, tell us about your first impressions of the Northeast and Newcastle, the setup, the supporters. You, you came from London famously, and uh, I bet you couldn't have imagined back then, 71, 50 years ago, that you'd still be worshipped as a, as a hero and legend of the club today. <laughs> well, um, let, me, let me put it this way, that it, it's, it's certainly an area uh, that has very long memories. Mm. Uh, and I thoroughly appreciate everybody for that. Um, I remember um, uh, my last game for Luton, I happened to score a hat-trick. Now... The season before, I had missed the target of 30 by one goal. And we still nevertheless got promoted from the third division to the second. Um, and after that game, I went to the manager. With a, with, uh, the, the, the board had sent down a couple of bottles of champagne. So I put some in a plastic cup and I, and I gave one to the manager and I held mine and um, raised it. And I said, well, here's you, boss. You said we could get... Uh, promotion um, we have done I said but I've got an apology to make he said what's that old son I said well I failed to get your target of 30 I said I, I was one short I only got 29 he said well you see old son there are those that you give them a target and they go over and beyond he said there are those those others who can hit it smack on he said and then there are people like you <laughs> and he just left it there and walked away and at the start of the next season in, in the team meeting before the first game he said um, he said McDonald the not a new boy uh, 30 and don't forget you owe me one from last season you know so he was instilling it in my head that figure uh, and how important it was to really chase it uh, and so at the end of the last game in my second season at Luton, we'd beaten Cardiff 3-0 on the Wednesday night. And, and in the dressing room, there was no champagne this time, so I got two cups and I went over and I gave one to Alex Stock and, and, I, uh, um, and I lifted it up and I said, well, boss, I said, um, uh, I said we've, sadly, we failed to get promotion. I said, but um, you wanted me to score 30. I said, well, my first one got the 30th of the season. I said, um, and my second, I said, that repays the one that I didn't get last season. I said, and the third, I said, well, you can have that one for luck. He says, you'll be needing some bloody luck where you're going, mate. Come and see me on Friday. I'll have some news for you. And of course, um, this, so this was right at the very end. And Joe Harvey had struck early, very early. And on the Friday morning, um, that uh, Alex Stock had been at the Great Northern Hotel because he and the directors were down for the cup final the next day. And so they'd invited Alex Stock along and everything was um, sorted then and Alex Stock's come back to Luton where I was waiting. And he said, get in your car, he said, uh, get down to the Great Northern Hotel by Kings Cross Station, he said, they're waiting for you. He said, and sting them for every penny you can get. <laughs> and so I drove down there and, uh, and I asked at reception, where could I find Mr. Harvey in the Newcastle party? And, um, and the, uh, the lassie pointed uh, to a corridor and she said, there's a lounge at the end there. They're all in there. I said, all right, thank you. So as I was walking down the, uh, along the corridor, all of a sudden the door at the end opened and there was this big square set of shoulders just filling the door frame and I thought oh you know I recognize Joe Harvey because I'd seen him play numerous times and um, and so I sort of held my hand out I said uh, uh, Mr Harvey I said uh, Alex Dock has asked me to come and see you I said my name's Malcolm McDonald from Luton Town and he just looked at me and he said, so you're the little bugger that's just cost this club another 30 grand. He says, what do you think you were doing scoring a bloody hat-trick mm -hmm. on Wednesday night? And I, and I thought, what a start. I'm getting a, I'm getting a telling <laughs> off for, score, yeah, <laughs> for scoring a hat-trick. Um, what had happened was Alex Stock had gone along there um, and they had agreed tentatively a fee of 150 uh, sorry yes 155,000 back at Easter 
and it got to the end of the season and Alex Stock, I've just scored a hat-trick, so he's gone down and he's put the fee up 10 grand a goal and it was 185,000. And uh, um, so anyway... Uh, Turned out to be a snip, mate. Well, I think so, yes. Um, Turned out to be a snip. Yeah, uh, and I don't think that... Um, that Joe um, quibbled about any further hat tricks that I'm no, he didn't. got. No, he didn't. no, there was one very shortly after that. Liverpool. Well, there certainly yeah. was, wasn't there? Yes. Well, yeah. Gibbo, the story of, of Malcolm arriving was huge news. Yeah. I wanted, I wanted to hear your memories of how it unfolded, and obviously his amazing debut against Liverpool, which you recently wrote about for Chronicle. Sure, sure. Um, I mean, as as is well known, Malcolm come up in a, in a Rolls Royce and. Uh, it was made to look as if he was very cleverly, and Malcolm will tell you so, by the guy that was driving him up, as if he was had a chauffeur. He was sat in the back in a roller, and we were all on the steps leading up to the main entrance at St James Park, we being the press, waiting for this guy coming in, and he come in the roller and did a real horseshoe U-turn right away around to the gate. Well, what a flash gig this is! <laughs> what on earth is this? And there was a shout from the from amongst us, and it was Bob Castle, who was a very yeah, dear friend yeah. of ours and become a, a dear friend of Malcolm, yeah. who used to work in the in the Chronicle offices, but then went on and was with his son, etc., etc. And he says, "Blimey, it's the first time a player has arrived here, driving his signed non fee, because he because he had the, he, he had this Rolls Royce, and." Um, <coughs> We started off with two away games, Palace and Spurs, and lost the first, drew the second, no goals involved, Malcolm didn't score, we come home, so it's still like the fans, whoa, he's a goal scorer. It was, you've got to remember, this guy was 21, and had only 21, and had never played top flight, never played in the top flight. This was the first time. You wouldn't know if you spoke to him, because he, he had more front than we have here at time of long sense. Uh, but he had never played in the top flight so it's can he score that day you've got Liverpool at home this was the Liverpool that was going to go on and win the European Cup um, all the big stars Emlyn Hughes and Tommy Smith and Kevin Keegan and Ray Clements and were all in the side it was a great 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 Liverpool side and I remember, yeah, I remember, and Malcolm will remember, in those days, I'd had it with my book when I wrote about the first cup, which was the first Newcastle United FC story. On the morning we played a match, then we had a signing thing in town, uh, which all the players went to, with a trophy on the end of the table and all us in a long line, and everybody filed in, had their photograph taken with the cup, got everybody's autograph and went out that end. And we sold out three, five times. We had a game that afternoon. And same here, Liverpool, I'd written a book, I'd ghosted Bob Munker's life story, uh, which immediately got put on hold on the back burner when Newcastle won the first cup. And then there was a second, I was to do a follow-up story because they were still in Europe the following season. So Bob's book went on the, on the back burner. It eventually came out just as Malcolm came to join us. In the morning of Malcolm's home debut, there was a signing session in town for Bob's book. Bob Munker was there, David Craig was there, Frank Clark was there, and Malcolm MacDonald, the new boy, was there. And I was there as the ghost of Christmas who had done, who had done the book. And we had this, and then off the lads went to grab whatever they wanted for lunch in town and then they walked up with the crowd to St James's Park to play Liverpool. Can you imagine that today? Can you imagine any manager today allowing that to be the build-up to the game? I tell you what, it didn't do him too much harm, did it? A, a hat-trick and we won 3-2. But that's, that was the build-up, Malcolm, was Yes, it? yes it was. But it was, um, it was interesting for me because it, it, it gave me a, a, an insight pre-match as to the kind of atmosphere that uh, could be generated, mm. you know, and that was just walking the the streets on the way to the ground, mm. and um, you know, at, at, at Luton Town, um, I'd never met anything quite like this at all, um, uh, and and so uh, I could feel this buzz 
in the town, not just in the air, but everywhere. There was a buzz within people. They were talking with a buzz. Um, uh, and there was sort of such a static and nervous energy all around. Uh, I'd never ex experienced anything like that down at Luton, that's for sure. And then, um, and we got and we got to the ground and uh, and into the dressing room. And for heaven's sake, you could hear the noise from outside coming into the dressing room, which was sort of deep in the under the stand. With a lot of players, they get nervous. I didn't get nervous. I I went quite the other way. I went quite cold because. It was, it was just sheer, utter focus. And, and what was going to happen out there never worried me at all. I was just focusing entirely on what I had to do. And there were times before a game I could go onto the physio's couch and fall asleep for 10 minutes. And then, um, and then of course, I got clouted by Ray Clements. Uh, Ray Clements, who was one of the sweetest... Um, kickers of a ball you could ever wish to see. Oh, he was a sweet kicker of a ball, and he and he duffed this kick, and and because he was such a sweet kicker of the ball, it was a goal kick, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a goal kick, um, and I I swear that he did it purposely because I've, I've stuck three past him, and he wasn't very pleased about that, and he's and and he's come hurtling, and as I've um, and that, the ball's come bobbling and I've gone to control it and it's gone up and over Larry Lloyd and I've run past Larry Lloyd and the ball, it's taking forever to come down and Ray Clements is coming but he's not looking at the ball that's up there he's looking straight at me in my eyes and, and I'm judging the ball coming down I realised I didn't have the time to control it I had to get up as high as I could and I lobbed it over him um, and and, and as I came down onto the ground, I just saw the ball come down just beyond the bar and hit the roof of the net, not on the side that I wanted it to. Um, and the next thing, Ray Clement woof, put six studs right in me, um, in my face. You were back on the couch asleep then. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, I was back yeah. on there asleep. And, and the next thing I woke up and there was Frank Clark stood at the foot. Um, and, and he said, how are you, bunny lad? And I said... Uh, I said, Frank, I've just had the most amazing dream. I dreamt I score a hat trick. He said, you have done, you silly sod. Yeah. It's a definition of a big-time Charlie, isn't it? You don't just have a home debut against a side as big as Liverpool and score a hat trick, but you get carried off on your shield. Yeah. I mean, that is the way to do it yeah. for drama, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Amazing, yeah. Paul, let's talk in a bit of detail then about the 71-72 season because Malcolm was one of a few new arrivals at the club last summer, wasn't he? Yeah, well, Joe Harvey unveiled a sort of new look, Newcastle United, after the first cup uh, days with Malcolm as centre-forward and also a new midfielder uh, from Leeds in, in little Terry Hibbert. Pat Howard came into defence, um, but after that spectacular start against Liverpool, it took the Magpies quite a while to blend together. It wasn't until another uh, arrival came to St James's Park, a magical little Scot called uh, Tony Green, did United sort of really uh, knit together and start to tick. Whenever we run polls or have debates on Chronicle Live about favourite ever all-time Newcastle players, usual suspects crop up, Malcolm, uh, obviously Alan Shearer, Jackie Milburn, yeah. Huey Gallagher, and without fail, Tony Green. Oh. And it's quite amazing, yeah. Mark, because he played, I don't know, 30 games yeah. or something. Yeah, that's it's all he played. It's quite yeah. staggering. It's somebody with so few games, is so revered. And as, as Paul would say and Malcolm knows, when he comes up here now, sti everybody's still around him. He is still this wonderful little lad that he was when he, when he played for Newcastle. It's quite phenomenal because there's... I mean, Clark, he played about 400 games or something to, to get anywhere near adulation. This fella did Sorry, Frank, you're not in that list, unfortunately, but Tony is. <laughs> um, a strange thing happened um, just a couple of weeks back when uh, we were playing Man United. Mm. And, and I was just watching Ronaldo. Um, and, he, and he was running through it. And I thought, I've seen that run before. And it was Tony Green. Mm. Because they... The way you uh, Yeah, they're both very high stepping. 
um, where just the knees touch, come up high. Just touch the surface. Yes, right? yes, absolutely. And and the way that Ronaldo ran was identical to how Tony Green did, and 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 you could see that sort of ability to go either way, um, and, and do it very quickly with this high stepping movement, and you can't read it. As a, a, a defenders couldn't read that at all, mm. and they didn't know which way Greeny was going ever. Mm. Um, and and apart from anything, he was an absolute diamond little fella. He really was. I, I think it's his 75th birthday mm. Um, mm. coming up, it is, isn't it? it is. in, in a in a few weeks. I mean, it's a great tragedy for Newcastle. Uh, obviously, it's a tragedy for the boy. He finished playing. It was a tragedy for Malcolm, who was finished by 28, 29. Yeah. 29 officially, 28 when yeah. the injury happened. To, to be finished so early. But it was a tragedy for Newcastle United because if Tony Green had been able to stay in that side, yeah. what. And we did okay in those years. People forget we won the Anglo Italian, we won two Texaco Cups, we got the FA Cup final, we got the League Cup final eventually with the same team. Malcolm was in that. But if we'd had this little guy as well, and we've had some great midfielders, he had Terry Ibbett um, putting him on a. Not on a platform because he had a lot of work still to do, but Terry had great vision. And and then you've got Greeny and Tommy Craig was around eventually. Uh, good, good players. And it, it, you just think, but wasn't that the secret of Joe Harvey? He wasn't a coach. He couldn't coach, but he could do two things great. His man management of players was great. He knew how to treat Malcolm as opposed to Terry Ibbett, because they're two totally different characters, but he knew how to treat them both to get the best out of them, and he had a terrific eye for players. McDermott from Bury, yeah. uh, Hibby from Leeds Reserves, Malcolm for McDonald... 30,000 he paid for mm. Terry Ibbett then. Malcolm McDonald had never played in, 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 in mm. the top division, mm. Paddy Howard from Barnsley, he, he got players plucked. Tony Green yeah. came from Blackpool, plucked them from nowhere and they've become big stars in Newcastle. The only guy for me in the transfer market at Newcastle that had the same eye after Joe, Stan Seymour had that eye in the 50s, that produced the 50s side, was Kevin Keegan when he bought the entertainers. He bought players and plucked them. Maybe they were higher up the pecking order at the time. They weren't at Bury and they weren't at Barnsley, but they weren't the superstars they became and he had a terrific eye as well and that's a gift I think Tony Green would have perhaps made that difference between not winning something and actually winning something oh, because had he been fit yeah. uh, for you know, three or four years playing in that side um, Absolutely Paul when, you, when you think he was uh, getting to yeah. the 74 FA Cup final 76 League Cup yeah, final yeah. had he been in those teams could yeah. that have just been a difference. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was special. Um, yeah. Oh. Certainly one of my all-time best players and like fans of my generation, you know, they all say the same. He was just just a magical little player. You know, uh, he was, and a, and a magical little um, personality yeah. as well. Yeah. Oh, he had a great personality. Wonderful yeah, little And I fellow. suppose he could be termed the, the, the Scottish version of Peter Beardsley in, in many ways. That he, yeah. he had that ability, energy. Yeah. Yes. Running ability at, at defences, he could score yeah. goals. And, 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 uh, and to look at him, he was yeah. he was very slight, quite short, and yet he could he could hit a ball from thirty or thirty-five yards, and it just went like an exercise. Yeah. I think what he was, was his debut in the Texaco Cup. He, he scored a thirty-yarder in yes. the end. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and and you can see the you see the opposition. They they witness the shot, and then they look back and go. As if to say, how the hell have you done that? I mean, the interesting thing was Wiley was this outstanding player. I remember going up the training ground and standing on the touchline and watching the lads train. He's one of the best players I've ever seen. He's one of the worst trainers I've ever seen. He was at, he was at the back of the... If, if ever there was any running or lapping before, he, he was at the back with his mouth open, looked as if he was about to die, or at least going an iron lung, but then throw a ball anywhere near him, and he came alive, and he was a totally different guy. Yeah. Oh, wasn't he just... Totally different Yeah. Uh, 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 but he, he had this wonderful, wonderful sense of humour and that just took everything in, it, in his stride and always had the ability 
just to smile and laugh about things uh, and it made him great company mm. what we're learning doing this series is that uh, life at newcastle is a complete roller coaster from day one to <laughs> 1971 i know what to. you're gonna say matt yes i know we don't shy away from talking about the darker periods of, no. of the club in this series because they're part of the story you know it's a uh, 140 year history we're talking about here but we do need to address the dreaded h word paul hereford um, well, uh, that 1971-72 season also saw United exit the FA Cup to non-league as Hereford United, of course. Uh, a name which still sends shivers down the spine of every United supporter of that era. Um, they held United to a 2-2 draw on Tyneside in a, in a pretty good open game. Then snow and ice disrupted uh, the planned replay, which saw thousands of fans head for Edgar Street street and had to turn back within touching distance of the ground including me i must say um and then we had to all travel again uh, a few days later and it was a long long way to hereford uh, back then um in a replay supermac gave united the lead and and really newcastle should have wrapped the game up at that point um and certainly in the first half they had chances um, but of course they didn't, and the rest, as they say, is history. Mm. Yeah, but you're, you're talking of the replay. The replay, yeah. In the, in the first game, they scored two 30-yarders. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, what was the... Uh, Colin, Colin Addison. Colin Addison. He was the player manager. He used to be at Derby County. And he hit one from about 33 yards, and it just screamed right in the top corner. And, and that put them ahead. And so we were chasing, chasing, chasing um, with them all the while. And, uh, and then a- another of their players hit another screamer. And, uh, a- and so we knew that we had a battle on our hands, for heaven's sake. You know, they'd come to St. James's Park, got a two-all draw and scored two 30-yarders. And, and they got another 30-yarder and we played, didn't they? Was that a tactic? Was that a tactic? Long-range efforts or something? Well, Ronnie Radford, I, I kid you not, when he struck it, I was two yards behind him. I was just on the verge of tackling him. And so it was your fault. <laughs> it was my fault. <laughs> After all these years, you would get there. And, and he was the most unlikely of characters to try a long shot. He was tall and lanky. Couldn't quite get his legs in order, if, if you see what I mean. And... And all of a sudden, he's just hit it, and I was behind it. And I thought, don't bother going for that, Willie, to William at fall. Um, it was right in the top corner. It was sort of, it had curled away from goal, and then it was coming back in, and it went right in the top corner. The irony of all of this was that he became such a sensational hero, Ronnie Radford, mm. that he finished up having a breakdown because of it, poor man. He yeah, couldn't yeah. handle it. He couldn't handle it. He couldn't, he couldn't handle, handle it. all the publicity that came along with it. I couldn't handle it afterwards either. <laughs> what was the match report like? Oh, I mean, it was absolutely ridiculous. It was on the Saturday. So it was like a Saturday match report. It was on the Saturday of the next round of the Cup. It had been postponed. That a replay and been postponed for the weather. So it was on the Saturday. It was the making of John Watson. Yes, he made his debut. The sheepskin. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the sheepskin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He was yes. He was given it as a young reporter because it was going to go on match of the day last last slot because they were doing the next round, last slot. You get this sensational result. It was promoted to top spot. He was given twice as long as he expected to have mm-hmm. and it took over the place. But, I mean, a lot of people forget with my recollections of it being there and trying to do a pink report, the football pink around those days of that was that when the fellas sitting next to me here scored in about 80 minutes 81 minutes or whatever like every giant killing I've seen the giant killers have been outplayed before they because they're the smaller club this was non-league part-timers against first division side we had hammered them to death and missed chance after chance he got up, great header, boom, and I said, thank goodness for that. This has gone on far too long. There's 10 minutes to go. We'll see this out. End the game. Let's get on the bus and get home. Uh, then Ronnie Rudford hits that um, drama of the shot. And then 
poor little Ricky George that scored the winner, the kid that scored the winner, never gets a mention these days because Ronnie Rodford scored this 30-odd. Excuse me, sir, I managed to score the winner after that, but I always remember because... Um, I had a habit of, because I was uh, trying to be socially nice, to, I used to go to a nightclub on a Friday night before the game on a Saturday, because he couldn't, you see, but I could, because as long as I was all right for the game the next day, that was fine. Now, I remember coming from this nightclub in, in Elephant, and there must have only been one in Elephant, uh, coming home, and I'm walking in with this little guy walking beside me, who I didn't particularly know, and Jackie Milburn, for some reason, was up. He was having a coffee or something with a... And he turned to this little fella, he said, hey, you, he said, you're a disgrace, you know, you, you, he said, I was a striker, and he said, you've been out in a flipping nightclub before a big game. And this little fella, who turned out to be Ricky George, said, hey, listen, Jackie, because he recognised Jackie, he said, listen, Jackie, he said, I, I'm a taxi driver in London, he said, I'm a part-timer up here, I'm not even playing tomorrow, so I've been out for a couple of drinks, it's no big sweat. He was on the bench the next day, he went on and scored the winner. I said to Jackie afterwards, never give anybody any advice ever again, because it's just boomeranged on yes. us completely yeah, yeah. When, when we lost to one. Um, and from there, he got a job with Adidas. That's right. Yeah. Yes, he did. Yeah, yes, he, yeah, did. He, he, Ricky George. Yes. He, he wasn't uh, Charlie uh, George. And so he, when we got to Wembley in, in 1974, um, that's right. the, the day before the, the game, um, the likes of Adidas and Puma, there was sort of really only the two at the time, um, they would come along because uh, what they used to do back then was with a luminous paint, paint the white stripes on Adidas and the wing on, um, on the Puma um, so, that, so that they really stuck out for the cameras at the hotel. Ricky George, he was saying, he said, I've got all, he said, I don't know where to put all the boots. He said, I don't know where to go and, and do it. He said, they haven't got a, a room or anything for me. I said, go and use my room. And I said, we're all going off to the cinema. And um, so I came back from the cinema and there was Ricky in my room, snoring his head off. He'd forgotten to open a window and the paint was, was <laughs> such... The paint had knocked him out, eh? <laughs> He <laughs> was out cold completely, yeah. I wish that had happened about three years earlier. But the whole thing, guys, about Newcastle, we've said you've done all this history so far and you've got more to go, and the theme becomes recurrent of the outrageousness of Newcastle. For me, in all my long career covering Newcastle, over 50 years non-stop, and a fan before that, that week sums up us to a T. We lose to Hereford, non-league part-timers, non-league part-timers. One Saturday, the next Saturday, we we'll go down to Manchester United and play Law Best and Charlton. They're so good, there's a statute, all three of them, outside the ground today. We play them the following Saturday, we'll run out the chance of Hereford, Hereford from their fans taunting us and we'll beat them 2-0. If that is not Newcastle United, yeah. Yeah. lose to Hereford mm -hmm. non-league one Saturday, next Saturday beat Manchester United with three of the greatest players the world's ever seen in the side. Yeah. That's us. And we murdered them. Well, we, we, did. we were so on That's top. us. That's yeah. us. And then, and then when that was the last time we won at Old Trafford until the Kabai. Until Kabai scored, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. absolutely. Yes. And, uh, yeah. Uh, I remember um, the first time I played against Bestie, obviously for Newcastle and Bestie he sort of shuffled about the pitch when he wasn't on the ball um, and, and he didn't really have much pace and we had a corner Bestie had gone back for it and it, it dropped into the D and Bestie just killed it and, and he just started off and, and I was like two yards behind him so I set off as well and what I discovered was, was that Bestie, who was not quick without the ball, with it, he was grease lightning. I couldn't catch him. And not only, not only couldn't I catch him, but he had the temerity to beat five defenders on the way. 
and he finished up getting getting into the Newcastle D. He's gone from one D to the other, beat five men. I'm I'm the quickest player in the league, so I thought, and I, and I just couldn't catch him. And he's got to the D, and he's hit this shot, and it's hit the top of the bar and gone over. Thank heavens. Oh, yeah, yeah he was what off. A he was off. Oh yeah. my Good word, he, he was. He was phenomenal and such a great fella as well. Paul, who were some of the main players then alongside Malcolm during this this season? Because looking at the record books, despite Malcolm's goals, Newcastle couldn't really get in the mix domestically, could they? No, they were inconsistent and, and that was the way right through uh, this particular era and the era before, to be honest. Um, Mid-table, um, but they'd certainly become more flamboyant, more exciting. Uh, and there were some fabulous players in midfield. I've already mentioned Hibbert, Smith and, and Green. And later, a young Irishman, Tommy Cassidy, came on the scene as, as well. All very talented ball players. And all of them uh, gave service to Supermac, uh, who in the first season hit 30 goals and then followed up with another 24 goals. Uh, he was very soon in the England setup as well. And 71 2, they finished 11th place in the following season. Uh, it was uh, uh, mid table again, and then 73 4 was 9th, uh, uh, finished 2. But as a bonus, there was an FA Cup run which matched anything from the 1950s, um, except, of course, on the big day at Wembley. Can I, can I add into that, Paul? Because it's all absolutely true. And a lot of people forget this, but I think it's quite important. In that 72 73 season, we won the Anglo-Italian Trophy. Now, everybody thinks that's too bob, um, you know, because there, there wasn't a European involvement. But we won. We went to Roma in Italy and won 2-0. We played Bologna at home, won 1-0. Como away, that was the easier one, 2-0. Torino at home, 5-1. We beat Palace in, in the semi-final. And then we went to Fiorentina with 45,000 in, at their place in the final without Malcolm McDonald who was playing with England, England yeah. was playing with England and we won 2-1 with all the, the, the Florence crowd in and David Craig scored the winner. That is not an easy tournament. When you go to Roma and win, you beat Bologna, you beat Torino 5 uh, and then you go to Fiorentina in the final without your, your England centre forward and win in front of 45,000 of their fans. That was terrific, and that was... We always were capable, in Joe Harvey's side, in the knockout tournaments. I think Joe Harvey was a very good knockout tournament manager, as opposed to league position. Because, why? Well, because in his playing career, they never bothered about the league position. They only bothered about the FA Cup three times in five years. That was the glory games. There wasn't a lot of glory in the league slog. This is their idea, not mine. And I think Joe carried that into his managerial career and we did well in yeah. knockout competitions. Yes, he had a tendency to put together a cup side. Yeah, he did. It wasn't designed to play those 42 games over the season and, uh, and come out on top. Mm, interesting. Uh, yeah. Well, let's discuss the 74 cup run then. Paul, do you want to go through the early rounds and then we'll go a bit, get a bit of detail from, from the guys? Yeah, well, there was a, a tricky and rather stuttering start in, in the opening rounds against uh, non-league Hendon and Scunthorpe. One, both were 1-1 draws at St James's Park, but then um, uh, Newcastle had resounding wins in the replay. Then in round five, we faced West Bromwich Albion uh, at the Hawthorns in February 1974. And that was a game that really set United up and, and is very much remembered by every Newcastle fan uh, that was there. It was a terrific display of football, demolishing the baggies as United won 3-0. And there was around 20, 25,000 Newcastle fans there, starting the non-stop ch non chant of away the lads, away the lads, virtually for uh, half an hour to 45 minutes of the whole game, non-stop. And it was just one of the greatest games that, as a fan I've seen uh, Newcastle play. Uh, I was going to say in black and white stripes, of course I didn't, I played in uh, uh, yellow and Brazilian yeah. type colours, which uh, summed up the day really. Yes, and a, a rather sad, um, strange thing happened in the um, opening few minutes against West Brom. Terry Hibbett was injured and he came off mm. and the sub was Jimmy Smith. And Jimmy, had, he played so little football um, in the time that I'd been there. 
and he came on. He absolutely, completely destroyed West Brom. I've never seen a footballing performance quite like it. He was unbelievably outstanding. Um, and it was one of the best team performances that I, I, I've ever played in. But it was, it was all to do with Jinky. I scored the first goal, but it was from the most phenomenal cross from Jinky, who was about, uh, he was sort of 25 yards up uh, the, on, the, on the right wing from the corner flag. So he's hit it sort of somewhat diagonally towards the edge of the six yard box. And, and it, was, it just came like an exocet. There was no height to it at all, really. It, 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 was, it was enough that I needed to give it a real good jump in the air, and, and, but then get my forehead to it, and, which I did, and that made it one nil. And he just ran the show. And uh, it's, I, he, he never did it again, really. No, did he? No, he didn't. It, it was, was just that now. one game. What a player. Fabulous. Word. It was probably the best game in that run. But what I found, Matt, was terrific about that run because, as Paul said, we started off playing, you know, a non-league side in Scunthorpe at home and couldn't beat them. You know, that was like Hereford who got a draw here. But the good thing about that run, which is forgotten because our cup final was so poor, the good thing about the run is we got it through every round away from home and Supermax scored in every round. And the reason we got to away from home every round is because when we beat Forest 4-3, the game had to be replayed because of a pitch invasion, and we went to Everton, got a draw, and then beat them 1-0, Supermac got the goal. Burnley, the semi-finals, obviously away from home, it was at Hillsborough. So we got through every round from the third right to the semi, away from home, and he scored in every round. And I prefer to dwell on that and have lovely memories of that than have the horror of the hour and a half in the cup final against Liverpool. The board decided in, I can only call it highly stupid fashion, how we should spend the week leading up to the final. And what they deemed was that we should go down to, um, to the hotel, Selston Park. Park Lodge, um, near Croydon, um, not far from Crystal Palace, and we had to go down on the Monday. We went, what? Why don't we just treat it as, a, as, a, as an ordinary away game so that we train at home on the, on the Friday morning, get on the bus after some lunch, and then travel down uh, to London, and then stay overnight, play the game, and, and, and there we are. And that's exactly what Liverpool did. No, no, no. The board of directors decided that we had to go down on the Monday and stay at Selston Park Lodge. And for the life of me, I could not understand. There was no logic to it. It was just totally illogic. And so I said, I asked the question, I said, why on earth are we going to these ridiculous lengths when they're not needed? And the answer came back, it was exactly what Sunderland did last year and they won at Wembley beating Leeds. It so, was, it was, it was exactly that. It yeah. was because Sunderland, and in fairness, in fairness, Joe Harvey's hand was all over it with the board because Joe Harvey's best mate in football was Bob Stogel, yeah. who, who had been at Newcastle with him yeah. in the 50s. Bob Stoker took Sunderland down to play Leeds, they had the full week at Selzenborg and they won the cup. Joe thought, oh, I'll have a slice of that, we'll do exactly the same. We did exactly the same till the sad day. And then on the sad day in the cup final, we did the exact opposite. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but controversially as well. But also, also there, was, there was one very, very important um, thing that happened. Through that week, Keith Birkenshaw, he had been trying to, he, he was a very poorly paid first team coach and he was doing his level best to get a rise and he was getting nowhere with the board, Joe was getting nowhere with the board, they weren't having it and, and it, it, got to, um, it got to the Wednesday and basically the board told 
Berkey to pee off uh, and that he wasn't going to get a rise and he was really angry really angry and so he's, he said right that's it I'm having nothing to do with this with the club with this match or anything like that. And, and Joe had a little panic up and so to get Berkey back on board what he said to him was Keith he said um what I'll let you, what, 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 I'm, what I'd like you to do, he said, I'm going to let you pick the team and define the tactics and what have you, he said. Get it all organised, he said, and, uh, and you can take the credit for it and then, you know, the board will change their minds. And Joe's theory, I, I, I believe, was that we only had the t- 12 players down there anyway, so there wasn't really very much that could be done any uh, 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 with it. What Berkey did was, he left out Stuart Barraclough. Barra had played the whole of the season. We had it so organised where we were defending, Barra would drop off to make four in midfield and we were 4-4-2. When we attacked, he pushed up and we became 4-3-3. That's how we played all through the season. He left Stuart Barraclough out um, uh, and he played four in the middle and he played narrow, very, very narrow. Now, Liverpool had a left back, Alec Lindsay, Lindsay, who was, he, he made a cart horse look like a greyhound and he, was due to face Stuart Barraclough. He must have been pooing his pants for the whole of the week thinking about that. And he got to Wembley. There's the team sheet, no Barraclough. And we played narrow and there was just this massive great channel down the left hand side and the right hand side. And he just went all day. And and Berkey just kept it narrow, and 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 they were having a field day, and so Lin, uh, Lindsay and the outside left for Liverpool, um, Steve Highway. Um, the two of them just because Frank Clark had had to play right back, hadn't he? Yeah. And the two of them yeah. were on Frank, and Frank he he was one of the best defenders I've ever played with, and. And it was, it was just too much for him. Nobody could get across to, to cover him at all. Um, and, and the midfield were, were almost non-existent because they were all so narrow. Uh, and, and Liverpool, they were as bad as us come half-time through the first half. Um, it had been a dreadful match up until then. And I, I remember as we were coming off at, at, for half-time, uh, I found myself walking next to Clarkie and I said, Frank, I said, there is no way that we can play as bad as that in the second half. He said, you're right there, Bonnie Land. He said, it's been awful. We went out and we were 10 times worse. Absolutely mm-hmm. shocking. And, and it was complete disorganisation with no way of being able to put it right because... because because we needed to go back to that old way. And Barrett wasn't even a substitute. He was, I remember, he, he yeah, was up the, in the stands. Yeah, he was. He was. And, I think Tommy Gibb was the sub. Yeah. Uh, I remember the thing with Barrett, because Barrett was a, a good, good friend of mine. Yeah. Uh, I used to knock about with him, and Malcolm was a good friend. And I remember being told by one of the players, I forget which one it was, like midway through the week or just later on in the week, he said, hey, your mate, he says, he's in a hell of a way. I said, who? He said, he said, Barrett. I said, what's the matter? He says, he's been told he's not playing on Saturday. He says, he's up in his room. He says he's going to go home. I said, oh, crikey, mate. So I went upstairs to his room, knocked on the door, went in, and he's busy packing a bag. He's busy packing a bag. I said, Barrett, sit yourself down. I want to talk to you. I said, look, son, you've got every reason to be upset. You're going to be upset. It's going to be a world's caved in. I said, but you walk out of here, not only are you finished at Newcastle, 
both with the club and the fans, you walk out on the team a couple of days before the cup final, even if you, you say it's because I wasn't picked. You don't do that. Not only are you finished here, but every club that might want to sign you will look at you and say, hey, what sort of dodgy bloke's this? Like if he, he spits the dummy out if things do, and he walks out on the club, I said, don't do it. It ain't good for you. It isn't, it, it's going to be bad, bad news. And he calmed down, he simmered down, and he didn't do it. Now, it could be argued, certainly by the Chronicle, who I didn't tell at the time, that uh, I did the wrong thing as a journalist because I, I did myself out of a page one lead. Yeah. Because Newcastle Star walks out on United two days before the cup final. Quite me, I would have had a page, page one lead. But sometimes friendship, which we talked about, Malcolm, right at the top of the programme now, sometimes friendship's more important than anything in saving the kid from doing something rash yeah. I was proud to do that and also from the Chronicle's point of view as far as I, that story never come out so the Chronicle didn't lose a story it didn't come out in one of the nationals years later but I reckon through that the Chronicle didn't get one story but they got ten over the next couple of years because if Barra was going to say anything to anybody, he was going to say it to me yes. because of the yes. favour I had done him. So I don't think the Chronicle suffered. But sometimes you've got to put friendship right up top yeah, because yeah. it is crucially important and I feel proud that that happened. And I was well pleased two years later when we went back to Wembley in the League Cup final, Barra played. Well done, son. Yeah, That'll yeah, do for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was a it was a bad day at Wembley against Liverpool, but but before that we had two terrific cup ties against uh, Forest and and Burnley, of course. And uh, you know that quarter final against Forest was was quite yeah. spectacular. Which um, one? All three. All three, <laughs> all three games, to be well, honest. Well, for um, the listeners who aren't aware, Paul, can you tell us exactly what happened in that quarter final? Because it was quite unique, wasn't it? Well, it was. Um, it was. You know, a trio of games. We played Forest at home first. Uh, we won 4-3 at St James's Park uh, after being behind, uh, only for the Football Association to, to annul that result uh, after an appeal by the Forest uh, players and, and club following a pitch invasion, which was determined had changed the course of the game. And, and uh, you know, every Newcastle fan and every Newcastle player were up in arms, I suppose, thinking on, what is it, 50 years later or whatever it is, uh, I suppose it did change the course of the game, but uh, we had to go to Goodison Park for a replay um, and that was a, a highly charged game, terrific support by Newcastle yeah. and uh, that was a draw again and then we had to go back again, I think it was two two days later to Goodison Park, strangely and I still don't know why to this day Nottingham Forest weren't allowed a home game. Yeah, I, I was going to make why. the very same point. It I don't was, know yeah, why. Absolutely <laughs> balmy. They um, never got the right to play at home. Yeah. It was a most peculiar and very strange decision by the um, by the FA. It was. But very on that peculiar. Second replay, another charge night, but it was Malcolm who yeah. uh, sealed the tie. Um, a, a, a through ball from it, I think a goal kick, and I think it was Jimmy Smith headed it on, and yep. uh, you shrugged off. I think it was David Sorella was on yes. the back. Yes. You, you kept going, um, and uh, it was one nil. Went round the goalkeeper. Us, that took us to the semi-final. Who was the goalkeeper? Was it Jim Barron? I think it was. Yeah. Yes. It was. Yes. Yeah. It uh, was. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it was. But uh, yeah, I, I remember sitting um, in the press box at the third game uh, when we won, and the Burnley lad, the Burnley presser, was there because they were already through to the semi-final and he said, hey Gibbo, he says, I'm delighted about this, he says, you've played three games to get here, you, you, you're playing us immediately, if the, he said, that'll do for me, you'll be exhausted, we are as good as in the final now, and I said, well, I would wait if I was you just to see what happens down there, and of course we went to Hillsborough and we had two Supermax. The first half was Super McFall, the goalkeeper that saved everything, and the second half was Super McDonald, who scored our two goals. Willie, um, Willie was sensational that first Willie half. Willie was terrific, oh, absolutely the, terrific. The number of great saves that he made—they, they, I've stopped counting after a, after a dozen, I think. He, um, had, he had those days, Paul, didn't he? If you re, if you remember when we won 
first uh, the half, first yeah. cup against Uspest in Budapest, first yeah. half was exactly the same as the first half against Burnley. Yeah, he, he's, right. he let two in, but uh, keeping the rest out allowed us to win the second the, yeah. in the second half three two. And he had days when he was absolutely terrific, and that was one of the days. And I think if you look at the goals Malcolm scored in the second half against Burnley, that summed up. Malcolm, both his power, his pace, yeah. and his finishing ability. Some about Terry Hibbert as well, the, 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 the ball that he ball could he, play. Yes, um, uh, and uh, uh, the, the centre half, um, oh, what was his oh, name? Oh, Colin. Oh, well, I was going to ask you, he, he was on your back as well, well uh, yeah, for the first one. And, uh, I, th- I think as a centre half, he just looked at the diminutive uh, Terry Hibbert and thought, well, he can't smack a ball that far so having hit it Colin Waldron got in front of me and looked to be attacking the ball and then he realised it was just going on and on and on and on and so he, he, he very quickly turned and I had, uh, and I was just on the move so that I wasn't offside to to, um, to catch up with the ball and he, he literally jumped on my back and, and and had me around the neck with both arms. You were piggybacking him, really. Yeah, and I was piggybacking him. Um, and, and, and I just kept going with him on the back. And I could feel him sliding down very slowly <laughs> as I was running until in the end he let go. And, uh, um, but he, the last thing he did was, was tug me. And so I, I, I was um, very much off balance but was still on my feet, unbalanced, um, and uh, um, and I uh, um, hit the shot, and uh, Alan Stevenson uh, parried it, and it but it came straight back to me. By then, I had righted myself, and uh, and and was able just to go to the side, take it round Stevenson, and and just side foot it yeah. in. But after the game. Uh, I, I said to the referee who uh, he was from Leicester he was a school teacher no it, Hill Hill Gordon uh, Gordon, Gordon Hill yeah Gordon Hill it was um, and and so after the game I, I said to him the easy thing for you would have just have been just to have blown your whistle given a free kick mm. when the fellow was on my back I said why didn't you that, would, that was the easy way out for a referee. Nobody could have complained. And he said a remarkable thing. He said, as a referee, he said, I like to know my players. He said, and he said, I knew you well enough that you were going to do everything to stay on your feet. He said, and just keep going um, and look to get a shot in. So I'll let you go. He knew we were strong enough, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. These, yeah, days, yeah. these days, the centre forward probably would have gone down. In, in, right. in, oh, you know, without doubt, and yeah. you scored two great, Absolutely. very yeah. important goals. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. I remember I've got, I've got a picture of that. I think it's the first goal, you scoring that. And there's a big hole in your boot, on your left boot, because your boot must have ripped it, open. It's, uh, yes, uh, it, it's the toe bit. Yeah. Uh, the, the thing was that the, the leather was such back in those days. That um, that to wear the boots in, you had to yeah, um, had to wear them in training. For um, what I used to do was when I f- when I got the boots as new, I would I would put them on and tie them up properly, and go and sit on the end of the bath, and soak with the boots, just soak the boots with my feet in, um, just to try to make the leather uh, as pliable as as possible. Um, you know, these days, of course. Well, I, I say these days for the for the last twenty or thirty years. You know, it, it's uh, um, it's almost paper thin. You know, kang- yeah, and they use kangaroo skin and all sorts these days. Um, uh, uh, but but the boots then, <coughs> and just the way they were designed, um, particularly if if you had a, a tendency to to scuff the the toe, it could all sort of wear out and what have you. Mm-hmm. <coughs> um, and, and the club in its professionalism it said that you could have 
two pairs of studs and one pair of rubbers to last the season. <laughs> I used to go through six pairs of studs and I kicked up stink with a club. I said, I'm not paying for them. If that's... Uh, um, to, I need to get those boots where I'm, I'm as comfortable as possible playing. So I need to really wear them in on the training field. And uh, in the end, they, uh, um, they did allow me more boots. Between 20 and 30 yeah. goals a season, <laughs> while the lens itself to you getting your own way, doesn't I it? I think so too, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, we should say as well, Paul, you were at the semi-final. Yeah, of course. I, I was in the in the huge bank behind the goal, right. the opposite Were end. You? To, to Wasn't it an incredible sight? Yeah, just a huge, huge bank. But when you scored the first one, uh, uh, you cost me a, a nice, expensive watch because uh, everybody went up and jumping all over the place, and I lost my watch in that well, it, it mayhem. Flew off your wrist. Yeah, it flew <laughs> off, and I never found it again. So, well, uh, so there you are. You owe me a watch. Time, time didn't stand oh, yeah. still for you, Paul. Eh? No. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was a wonderful occasion, winning a semi-final. Incredible atmosphere up there, wasn't it? Just the the sight of it, it just went up and up and up. It was was quite amazing. Um, But it, it... also, let's not forget, because Terry Hibbett, not the first ball, but Terry McDermott hit hit the one for the second goal. And he, he hit a fabulous um, uh, ball through. Mm. Yeah. yeah, they both had a, an incredible ability. But uh, but it, mind, I have to say, we I don't think I've ever witnessed breaking players' hearts like we did that day with Burnley. They were just completely, utterly shell shocked come the end yes they in the first half they have been sensational it was some of the best football I've ever seen in my life they played it brilliantly well hard luck then (laughs) (laughs) so there we are listen to part one of our two-part episode with John Gibson and Malcolm McDonald is done the 19th installment of Chronicled the history of Newcastle United. I mean, if you're going to discuss the Supermark era, there literally is no one better to have on the show than the man himself, and John Gibson too, legendary Chronicle writer, who enjoyed incredible access to the players during this time and witnessed everything from Hereford to Wembley. Both fantastic talkers, of course, and as such, we'll have even more from both of them next week in part two when they discuss the 1974 Wembley hangover, the end of the Joe Harvey era, the arrival of Gordon Lee, and the fallout from that, plus another trip to Wembley to play in the 1976 League Cup final. Gibbo and Supermax still write for Chronicle Live today. Both have columns on our website and links to both are in the description of this episode if you'd like to read their thoughts on modern-day Newcastle United. In the meantime, thanks everyone for listening. If you have any NUFC history stories, observations, facts, stats, questions for Paul Joanne, you name it, you can email us at eibwpodcasts at reachplc.com or tweet me at Ketchell on Twitter. Please subscribe to the Everything is Black and White podcast via whichever podcast platform you're listening to us on. Follow Chronicle Live's Newcastle United channels on social media. We're at Chronicle NUFC on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. If you're enjoying what we're doing with our history series, please do leave a five-star review on iTunes. That'd be great if you've got time to do that. And lastly, stay up to date with Everything Black and White by subscribing to our daily Newcastle United newsletters. These are free and the link to sign up to these is in the show notes. Hit that, scroll down to Sport, Newcastle United updates, tick the box and you'll be signed up. Thanks so much for listening to Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United, with me, Matt Ketchell, Paul Joannou, and our very special guests, John Gibson and Malcolm McDonald.